0: Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard.
1: Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please excuse my voice, but um, I've been very sick for the last week. I've had this flu thing, can't get rid of it. Feels like an elephant sitting on my chest, but um, the show must go on. So here I am. So bear with me. Uh, we're the number one global radio show in the world for entrepreneurs, and we're brought to you by the American Institute of Sales, Marketing, and Management. If you're listening the first time, we've been bringing you the show now for three years. We've interviewed over 180 business leaders and Movers and Shakers, who have provided an enormous amount of advice on how to become a successful entrepreneur. So this is the Business Radio Program. We don't tell you about the stock price fluctuations of Fortune 500 companies and all that crap. We give you practical advice to help you become one of those Fortune 500 companies. We help you to be successful. Each week, we bring you the latest information on what is happening in business throughout the world now email (coughs) excuse me is one of the most powerful tools in the marketer's arsenal it's one of the best ways to increase your database and to rapidly grow your business however it's very easy to send out emails but very few people do it very well and often if it's not done right emails can do you more harm than good but when it comes to email marketing if you don't do it right you will pay the price. So here are a few questions that you've got to know the answer to before you create an email campaign. The first question is, when is the best time to send a marketing email? Well, Tuesdays and Thursdays get the highest response rate and the early bird gets the worm because sending emails between 5 a.m. and 10 a.m. will ensure that your message is in the inbox at the right time. Lunchtime is between 12 and 2, that's also an effective time to send marketing emails as most lunches today are eaten while people sitting looking at their computer screen. After 2pm in the afternoon, it's usually pretty ineffective. The second question you should ask yourself before you undertake an email campaign is how do you develop a compelling subject line? It's really hard. I, I do it all the time and you sit there and you struggle over what to put. But the best subject lines are simple, engaging, and I don't give it all away. You need to, you've got to compel the recipient to open the email and take the next step. Asking a question using numbers and metrics and giving tips and how-tos, they're all effective ways to get your email open and when crafting a subject line, present a strong call to action and personalise it wherever you can. And you can do that easily with things like MailChimp. Thirdly, you should organise links within your email. You need to design your email message with multiple clickable areas. Now, these can include the, the header image, the headline, a call to action button, an image or text links within the body of the email. You know, you really should have three to four links for every one to two paragraphs of copy. The fourth question you should ask yourself when you're looking at having um, an email campaign is how stylized is too stylized? Every email client's different, but you really want to keep it fairly simple. Stay away from stylized fonts. Use alt tags for images. Always create a text version of your email, and above all, test, test, test. And then once you've tested it three or four times, go test it again. The fifth question should come down to how often should you send an email? Well, it depends on how much you've got to say. Relevance will always trump cadence. Any message you send should provide value to the recipient and include a strong call to action. Don't be afraid to email several times a week or even more than once a day if you've got the content to support it. The final question you should ask yourself when creating an email campaign is how long is too long? You've got three seconds maximum to grab your reader's attention when crafting your email. You've got to consider your contact your subject line the bait, and your opening sentence is the hook. A marketing email should be long enough to present the business challenge and propose a solution. It's typically one to two paragraphs of five to seven sentences each. If you still have more to say, link your recipients to a blog when they have time to browse. Now, email marketing is an incredibly effective channel for driving real business results if you do it effectively. Please, if you've just tuned in, please excuse my voice. I've been really crook for the last week. I'm sipping hot tea to try and keep my throat working. So I apologise for the slurps that you're hearing at the other end. (laughs) Um, Women are deceived more often than men by both men and women. Women who think they're getting a worse deal in negotiations because of their gender now have scientific evidence to back up their suspicions. Women are perceived to be easier to mislead and they're more likely than men to be lied to during negotiations. (laughs) According to a recent study from researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, the study found that people were significantly more likely to blatantly lie to women. Well... That comes naturally to guys, but both men and women lie to women more often than men. So in one experiment, 24% of men said they'd lied to a female participant, but only 3% had lied to a male. Women lie to men 11% of the time, but lie to other women 17% of the time. See, this is good stuff to throw back up when you in a little bit of a tussle and uh, you've been caught out saying, wasn't me? Now, the study showed that part of the reason that women are lied to more often is they're perceived as being less competent but much warmer than men. And the warmer a woman's personality is, the more she was expected to be easily fooled. Well, there you go. There's ammunition for you. Now, let me tell you about a fantastic initiative for girls. Girls Who Code is a national nonprofit that seeks to close the gender gap in the tech industry. There are half a dozen similar programs around the country, and these are supported by tech giants like Google and Facebook and AT&T and others. And they offer coding classes developed specifically for girls. By the end of a seven-week summer stint, the girls that attend will be designing algorithms that do everything from locating public restrooms to detecting false positives in breast cancer screening. You know what's interesting? The study found that many girls were just far too scared to take a computer science class because they thought that they were going to be totally surrounded by guys. So they didn't want to do it. Now, changing that kind of mindset is a national strategic challenge. By 2020, U- U.S. universities will not be able to fill even 30% of the country's 1.4 million computing positions with qualified graduates. Now, they're pretty scary. And the industry needs to so, you know, what can we do? The first thing we have to do is tap into the other 50% of the population, that is women, if it hopes to be able to fill any of these roles. At present, only 12% of computer science degrees go to women. Since it launched in 2012, the Girls Who Code program has gone from 20 girls in one classroom and it's now graduating 3,000 girls from camps across the country each year. And better still, 95% of the graduates go on to do computer science in college. These future, fi- fi- <laughs> I'll start again. These future female developers are valuable to tech companies in ways beyond simply filling open spots. You know, most internet purchases, it's about sixty-five percent, are made by women and coders who understand their instincts. That's got to be a real bit key to business success. In June. Google revealed that only 17% of its engineers were women. And Google launched a site called Made With Code that features free programming projects for girls. And Google gave $50 million to programs such as Girls Who Code. Educators are trying to understand how to engage girls in computer science early and why so few of them stick with it. Even though, you know, we know that Girls outpace boys in almost every subject. And yet, when it comes to computer coding, they're not there. Now, Girls Who Code emphasises problem-solving real-world issues because girls tend to want to help their communities. The programs also assign group projects because research shows that girls flourish when they collaborate with others. Many high school programs have also opted for a single-sex approach to help girls build a network that they can lean on as they enter a male-dominated workforce. But with so few high-profile female programmers as role models, many girls still have a hard time envisioning themselves in the field. So the reality is that coding must be better integrated into the classroom. Currently, nine out of every ten schools in the U.S., don't offer computer science. That's bloody pathetic. Nine out of ten schools in the United States don't offer computer science. Bloody hell. Code.org, a non-profit backed by Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates and Google, aims to change that by mimicking China, Vietnam and the UK where coding classes are offered as early as elementary school And the gender gap is negligible. So ours is 17% to 83%. China, Vietnam and the UK, almost 50-50. I've mentioned this before and this is a really scary statistic. The percentage of students at high school in China who write code. So the percentage of students at high school in China who write code, 100%. The percentage of students at high schools in the United States who write code, 6%. So 100% in China, 6% in the United States, pretty woeful. And we're in the technology age. Maybe they are over there, but we don't seem to be over here. Now, every day we get a new survey that comes out that seems to absolutely blow me away. So here we go again with the top 10 US brands with the most positive buzz. This is primarily research from social media. Now, I can understand Amazon.com coming in at number one. I get that. No problem. I can probably understand Subway coming in at number two. So that's not that much of a surprise. And YouTube, Netflix, Samsung and Apple, they're not a surprise either. But the top 10 US brands with the most positive buzz includes Ford, Walgreens and Lowe's. How the hell do they make the list of the, with the most positive buzz? They are all as boring as batshit. I have to be missing something. So if anybody thinks that Ford, Walgreens and Lowe's deserves to be on the list of the top 10 brands with positive buzz in America, drop me an email, let me know why. In a scary Hewlett-Packard study this week, it was found that nearly three-quarters of all Internet of Things devices are susceptible to getting hacked. <laughs> That's reassuring, isn't it? And once they get in, they can get everything else in your place. So they come in through the fridge or they talk to your toaster and then, and then they steal all your code and they steal all your passwords. Great. Um. The study examined 10 common smart devices, including refrigerators and smart TVs and webcams and a bunch of other stuff, and they found that each device had approximately 12 vulnerabilities. And most of the vulnerabilities had to do with a lack of password strength and weak protection software. Eight out of 10 devices fail to require passwords strong enough to be of any use whatsoever. And the same amount put users at risk of having their personal information intercepted via cloud services. So it might be all right for the fridge to talk to the toaster, to talk to the microwave, to talk to your garage door, to talk to your air conditioning system. But when those things start talking to hackers, you've got a problem. Information technology research firm Gardner predicts that there will be 26 billion Internet of Things object in the world by the year 2020. 26 billion. That's 26,000 million. It's got to be a hacker's paradise. And the fact is that many categories of connected things in 2020 don't even exist yet. So, as product designers dream up new ways to exploit the inherent connectivity that will be offered in intelligent products, we expect the variety of devices offered to be, you know, just explode in number. So, let's hope that security is also going to be increased significantly. <coughs> Excuse me. If, you have, if you've just tuned in, I apologise. I've been ill for the last week, feel like a, um, an elephant sitting on my chest, but the show must go on. <laughs> You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, brought to you by the American Institute of Sales Marketing Management. We're here to assist entrepreneurs to become more successful. So if you've got a question about any aspect of business, or you've got somebody in particular that you'd like me to interview please don't hesitate to email me at Bob, B-O-B, at Bob Pritchard, dot com, and we'll either answer it on air or we will email you with an answer directly. Now, after the break, I'm going to be talking with my guest, Jen Lasker. I love this lady. I, um, I first met her on uh, Ken Rakowski's, Business Rockstars radio show on the CBS network when I was one of her mentors and she is just sensational. That was six months ago. She created a product, a new product, a totally new category product for supermarkets. She bootstrapped it to the point where they've widespread distribution across America and she's done all of this while being fully employed in a day job and she's now in 1500 major stores across America including every major store you can think of and she's still working her day job. Now that sounds like the modus operandi of the perfect entrepreneur and she is. Now due to her efforts In single-handedly building a new grocery category, guess what? The $76 billion global giant Nestle is coming in and taking her on. So it's a $76 billion Nestle against a girl who is still working full-time while she builds a market that she developed. You know what? My money is on Jen. You're listening to Bob Pritchard, Radio Show on Voice America Business, brought to you by the American Institute of Sales, Marketing and Management. And I'll be back with my mate, Jen, in just a moment.
0: Do you want the world to know you're a force to be reckoned with? If so, you must join the American Institute of Sales, Marketing, and Management, America's foremost accreditation institute. You'll be amazed at how AISMM can open doors that you can't. Increase your prestige and influence. Add the letters AISMM after your name. Apply now. Go to AISMM.org. Again, that's AISMM.org. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Well, this is the segment of the show where we talk to people who are real achievers. And today, we've got a real achiever. We've got a little guy that still works in a full-time job and uh, runs a up-and-coming but successful business after hours and has forced a $76 billion giant, Nestle, to come in and have a go at them. Now, that's an extraordinary effort. I just love it. Um, you might remember that in December last year, I interviewed Jen Lasker of Jen and Joe's Cookie Dough, and uh, I was privileged to meet her on the Ken Rakowski Business Rockstars show on CBS Radio. And uh, as those of you who listen to this show every week know, I'd urge every entrepreneur to to seek help, to surround themselves with people who can provide advice on a range of issues. You know, save saved my bacon more times than I can remember. And uh, Jen is just one of those people. And since that interview, and I have, you know, I'm not a cookie eater normally, but I fell in love with, with Jen and Joe's cookies. I mean, you, they're individually packed. Even I, who, you know, I'm not that great a cook, I can throw the cookies into the oven and then any flavour that I want and they've got great flavours and I'm, I'm just trying to think of them while I'm while I'm talking to you but I know white chocolate wasabi and, and uh, lemon drop are two of my absolute favourites and then um, I was introduced in the studio with Ken to snickerdoodles and <laughs> they are just great. You just take them out of the pack, stick them in the oven and bingo, you've got hot cookies that absolutely taste like they're homemade and you've just made them. Not like those frozen ones that you've got, to, the, um, the, um, the ones that you just take and cut off and the plastic stuff that the other guys make. So the business was already successful when I interviewed Jen um, six months ago. They were stocked in about 200 major retailers, including places like Gelson's and a number of others. But by the end of this year, their store count's going to be around 1,400 stores. That's from 200 to 1,400 in a year. That's a fantastic effort. And the story just gets bigger and bigger. And they've now landed their biggest account to date, Safeway, with 835 stores. Now you think about it, they've done achieved all that while working a full-time job. And I remember um, six months ago that, you know, it's difficult. And Jim was saying, you know, you get you get tired, and it, you know, it, it's hard to do. So, since they launched, they've been the only brand offering individually frozen cookie dough. But now Nestle has decided to enter the game. Now the stores love it because this will enable them to um, build out the category and get people to think about, hopefully. Um, Nestle is going to throw a lot of money at this and therefore encourage people to go to the freezer aisle for um, for cookies but why has Nestle decided to take these kids on because they have to Jen's always believed that refrigerated dough is inferior and apparently Nestle agrees and now Nestle and Jen have a fight on their hands now Jen is this tiny little person and Nestle is this Giant thing, and uh, but consumers want better agreement uh, ingredients. They want a better product, and my money is on my mate Jen. Now, of course, Jen's biggest challenge through all this has been re-educating consumers to go to the freezer section instead of the refrigerator section. So most people are used to just going to the refrigerator section, buying their buying their cookie dough and getting people then to um, to go to the freezer section instead is not easy. But now there's a whole bunch of new challenges ahead as the $76 billion Nestle takes them on. So Jen's actually the perfect guest for this show. She created a product. She bootstrapped it to the point where they have widespread distribution. She's done it all while being fully employed in a day job. Now that's the, the perfect entrepreneur scenario, isn't it? Fantastic. Hi, Jen. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Great to talk to you again.
2: Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me back.
1: Well, if you didn't make such good cookies, I wouldn't have. (laughs) (laughs) I love your cookies. They are so good. And anybody who hasn't tried them, um, Jen and Joe's cookies are sensational and it's so easy. So how are you going to make yourself stand out? What do you do now? You're going to have the thousand pound gorilla... Um, sitting next to you. How do you how do you um, make yourself stand out?
2: Yeah well we're very excited about this opportunity first off you know we've been saying all along that if there are more people competing in the space it'll raise the entire category. We Absolutely. saw what happened to the ice cream category years ago you know yep. when you used to have a couple of brands on the shelf and you know it wasn't very exciting most people went to an ice cream store and now you take a look at ice cream there 10 doors in every grocery store full of amazing flavors and tons of variety. And we always wondered why that wasn't the case with cookie dough, and we wanted to make that happen. So now we feel like one of the big guys is getting in the game. We're in the game. We've been opening up the space, and we feel like now it's going to happen. So for us, standing out, you know, we can't really compete on price with some of the big guys. They're always going to be able to undercut us with pricing on ingredients. But what we can compete on is flavor. We can always compete on the look of the product and the quality of the ingredients. Yeah, so we just key. spent a little bit of time revamping our packaging, and we're really excited about it. You know, I think um, we've had a lot of feedback. People always wanted us to say something on, on the package about it being a natural product or all-natural, something like that. And yeah, I agree. We've never wanted to do it, though, because they're – the the words all-natural have become basically meaningless in this landscape because there's been so much litigation over the use of the term um, all-natural. And consumers have become distrustful of those words. And so when someone sees the words all-natural, what do they typically do? Pick up the package, and they turn it over and read the ingredient list.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: What is really in there? So I decided... Well, what if we give them everything that they need to know right on the front of the box? So this turnaround, we've taken all of the ingredients that are in the uh, cookie, and I've put them on the front. So now we've got the tagline on the front, ingredients so good, they're on the front. That's great. And every ingredient that goes in the cookie, you're going to have right up there. And that includes everything from the flour and the chocolate chips all the way down to the baking soda and the salt that goes in it. So you know that everything that goes in there. It's right there. You can read
1: it. Did you know so that? I wanted- did you know that Monday's chocolate chip day in America? It is next Yeah, it's,
2: it's crazy. We've got a day for everything in America, yeah, don't we? That's
1: amazing. We need a Jen and Joe's cookie day.
2: I know. That's what we need. Maybe we'll
1: get there someday. Yeah, just pick a day. Um, I guess the big manufacturers do have an advantage, price wise. Um, do, do, do they have a are they actually favored by the um the supermarkets um, do you think that they get preferential treatment or better treatment because of their muscle or do um the supermarkets want to encourage the little guy who makes a better product
2: well you know some supermarkets definitely have programs for small businesses or businesses um, that are owned by minorities or or women. Um, So they do want to level the playing field a little bit Um, not all supermarket chains are like that but some of them do want to level the playing field a little bit and a lot of it reflects customer demand you know right now in the cookie dough market we took a look at the data and it has been completely flat in all areas and in fact most of the segments of cookie dough have been losing money, except for the very small area of the more natural segment. Right. So the customers have been speaking out that they're tired of all the junk in the cookie dough, and grocery stores are looking at that. They're looking at their declining sales in that standard, you know, big company cookie dough, and they're seeing that the stuff that doesn't have all the, the junk in it is what is selling, And it's the small manufacturers who are producing it, so they know where the increase in sales are coming from, and and they want those producers in their stores now.
1: Right. So so apart from um, putting the ingredients on the front, which I think is a great idea, um, how else can you um, compete against a price difference? How how much of a price difference do you anticipate this going to be, and at what point do people say, oh, I really want to save the $0.10 or $0.20 or... Whatever it is,
2: yeah, we don't know yet how much of a price difference it'll be. I imagine it'll be a dollar or more right. difference in price. Right. And if someone really can't afford that difference in a dollar, let it's them to be Our customer.
1: <laughs> if they can't afford the extra dollar, let them eat junk. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, we're we're not going to get everybody, but if we can get ten or twenty or thirty percent. That's going to be good enough for us. This is a big chunk of the market.
1: How much How much lift do you think there'll be in the category? You think it'll be a big lift?
2: I think it'll be a huge lift because right now we're pretty much the only players in the category.
1: Yeah, and it's very difficult for you to get the message out hard enough to change people's um, buying from the um, refrigerated to the freezer section, right? Where presumably they will run a big campaign to get people to do just that
2: absolutely yeah our our biggest selling point you know the the biggest way that you can sell the product is just by being there on the shelf first off yeah and then you have the ability to start promoting and getting the product name out there but you have to be available for sale so you know just the distribution that we've managed to gain in the last six months is our biggest accomplishment and now you know comes step two with getting the word out there to people
1: Right. I always thought that the whole, and I'm obviously wrong because they still do it. But I'm I'm always thought that the whole planogram system is kind of weird, where the mm-hmm. big guy in the category gets to determine the shelf design. I've always thought that was there's something inherently wrong with that. Um, what happens in the um, in the freezer section? How does that work? with regard to, I mean can Nestle just simply get you put on the bottom shelf so nobody can find you or or can minimize your shelf space, is there any way they can do that?
2: You know I'm not sure that they can and it's in the best interest of the grocery store to keep the category together in one spot. Yeah. Now when you're talking about a really large category like ice cream where they have so many doors. They have more flexibility with which product goes where. When you're talking about a really small category like frozen cookie dough where you're likely to only see two brands right now in that category, they're going to be side by side.
1: And I guess that what will happen is that um, it will open up a lot more – Supermarkets to your product because they'll obviously stock people who haven't stocked yours because they think oh, it's one product and it's you know it's a small brand. um will get Nestle and probably stock them, and then turn around and say, "Well, it, you know, it'd be good to have um, to be able to fill this category out a bit. So let's get Jen and Joe in here."
2: Absolutely, yeah, we're in quite a few discussions right now, and. You know, we're in a position now where we've turned away a couple of deals because they didn't make sense for us. We'd be losing too much money on them the first year. And we know that we need to reserve funds to be able to support the product fully in other areas. So it is opening up a lot of doors that we didn't have open to us before.
1: I think one of the other great things that I I should have mentioned in um, in the intro that I haven't is that you have done all this on your own funds. You haven't taken in any investors. You've managed to build a very solid business without any investment and part-time. I think that is just an extraordinary effort. Now, yeah. um, since you're not you know, the reason that people go to the supermarket, why would Nestle... Um, Go into frozen cookie dough when they've already got the um, refrigerated cookie dough market you know pretty well done why why would they launch frozen cookie dough and, and not only compete with themselves but drag people away from that whole category they've already got
2: well they have to at this point the the data out there shows that their sales are actually declining Right. In the, the refrigerated cookie dough, people don't want to buy the, the refrigerated dough anymore. It has too many artificial ingredients in it. The taste isn't there. And in order to make a cookie dough that's going to last and have good quality ingredients, you have to freeze it. You just can't put a lot of eggs and butter and stick it in the refrigerator for longer than a week.
1: Do... Um, is it is it a sign of... Um People wanting a better product, or is is it a sign that um, maybe people are thinking a bit healthier? Huh. It seems hard to believe when you go to the you go to Disneyland, but um,
2: <laughs> what do you think? I'm do you excited. think it's well? People are definitely thinking healthier, but they still indulge. Yeah. So people are thinking healthier in terms of taking out the artificial ingredients and if they're going to indulge, making sure that what they're indulging in is something that they don't feel too terribly guilty about. So, and, you know, going back to the ice cream, the new brands on the shelf aren't chock full of high fructose corn syrup. They are yeah. they are touting the natural ingredients that they have in there. You know, when you walk the floors of the fancy food show or natural Um, the Natural Products Expo. These are all brands that, you know, confection, candy, uh, popcorn, caramel corn, they're all indulgent things, but they are using ingredients that are as good for you as possible. And that's what the cookie dough market needs to be as well. And I I still can't figure out why we're the first ones to do it.
1: Don't tell me that caramel corn is now good for you. That'd be so disappointing. (laughs) You know, I've gone gone from always eating crap to eating healthy. You know, I used to always eat crap and think, this is a good meal, that's an indulgence. Now I eat really healthy and I love going to state fairs and things where I can eat crap. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Excuse me. So when they come out, the day they launch, what are you doing? Are you... Doing something, you're just going to sit back and say, Let's see what you guys can come up with.
2: We do have introductory price promotions in place. We have um, some promotions that we'll be running through the internal Safeway programs. Um, They have a wonderful program that goes out to the cardholders called the Just For You program, um, where we can, you know, we're talking with them now about. Potentially giving away free boxes of cookies, um, and we can we can do very strategic targeting of customers, where we can drill down into demographics of um, customers who've been very loyal to purchasing cookie dough, um, or cookie mixes, things like that, yep. um, and just so that we can give them a free box and give them a taste and see if we can get them to switch over. Um, So we have some funds reserved in order to target people like that. And, um, you know, we're working on Facebook campaigns, um, doing some advertising through that.
0: Um,
2: And uh, working through some of the social media channels. We have a PR firm that we've been working with for the last year. And they're out there targeting magazines and bloggers, and uh we're working through those channels as well
1: yeah they, you could do some fantastic campaigns with with the likes of instagram um and Pinterest and I think you could do a fantastic um viral campaign and it it just lends itself you know it's it's just a and it's a great product. I mean, it's not the cookies are not the sort of thing that I would normally eat. But um, you were gracious enough to send me some after our first interview, and uh, I love them. I mean, they are fantastic and so easy. And you can have half a dozen people around and just throw them in the oven. And a few minutes later, you have got great cookies that everybody loves with fantastic flavors. And uh, you know, since since I got a, a some introductory packs from you. I have, um, I have actually gone out and bought a truckload over the last six months, um, <laughs> because it's just yummy and it's so easy. And now that you tell me it's healthy, ha, it's even better. Um, what? Um, who is your primary target um, buyer? Who's that? Who, who is that person?
2: Our best buyer is still the mother with young children at home. Right. She wants to give her children a treat, is going to want to limit the number of cookies that she bakes, because if there are a lot lying around, the kids end up eating more than she wants to give them. (laughs) She ends up eating more than she wants. You know, she wants to make just a few. It's quick, it's easy, and it doesn't have a lot of junk in it, so that she's not feeling like she's giving her kids something that's really unhealthy. Yeah, and you know, I, I just heard from someone today who I had met her a year ago at a demo, and she says every time she walks into the store, she's still buying the cookies that her son tasted that day at the demo.
1: <laughs> I love it. The um, so you you will try to get as much um, uh, exposure in the marketplace and with some. Uh, pri- um, Trial incentives when Nestlé launched. What What do you do then? You sit back and wait and see what happens before you take the next step, or?
2: Well, I think that we just keep pushing forward. I, you know, we've been talking a lot about when is the time to take the next leap, and. You know, potentially take on investors. We've wanted to hold on to as much of the company as possible for as long as possible, and that's why I've maintained a full-time job while doing all of this, yeah. um, so that I could continue to fund the company 100% myself. No. Um, with this kind of distribution, we should be able to um, start getting the company to pay for itself. Um, but it may be time to look at taking on investors and pushing to the next level. So we've you- got the distribution nationwide, and we need to really back it with a strong marketing campaign and that that may take investor funds.
1: Yeah, that would be that would be a pity really in some ways, wouldn't it?
2: It might be, but you know, it may be taking a look at is it better to have yeah, 100% of a really small company or you know, 60 or 70% of a much larger company.
1: How scalable are you, Jen? I mean, if if um, suddenly there's all this focus on the category, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, presumably, even if with all the muscle that they've got, even if they pick up eighty percent of the market, but they have a much bigger market and they drive um, double or triple your sales, how how geared up are you to be able to um, to handle a lift like that? And, and well, expand the number of outlets you've got at the same time. I mean, that that puts some severe pressure on it, doesn't it?
2: It does. It does put a lot of pressure on it, and that's something that we, you know, we think about quite a bit. It does keep me up at night sometimes. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we we work with a co-packer right now, and we so we're not, you know, we're not doing this out of our own facility. Um, sure, we're not confined by by our own space, which is nice. Yeah, um, and we do have the ability to. Yeah, I've had constantly been searching for other co packers in case we need to expand and bring in a co packer on the East Coast and bring in a co packer on the West Coast so that we have multiple locations that we're producing out of. Yeah. Um, in, in the event that we need to uh, expand like that, that would take a little bit of time to ramp up, of course. So it is scalable. It would take a little bit of time to do it, but it can be done.
1: When is Nestle planning to launch?
2: That is going to be happening in the next month or two. A lot of their launch basically depends on when the large stores have their category resets. Right. So, in the case of Safeway, their reset will begin at the end of September, going through about the end of October. So, we'll see. We'll see it hitting in the fall.
1: Well, that so should just be and
2: for the holidays.
1: That should be fun.
2: Yeah. So,
1: how? Do you think there's a uh, uh, the, you know one of the problems that all um, startup companies have when they're bootstrapping is you know when do I bring in an invest well what do I bring in an investor? Um, secondly, uh, when and thirdly, where do I find them? So let's let's take it one at a time. If if you presumably you won't bring in an investor unless you need to. Um, or do you think you need to just to, um, just to be able to expand fast enough to address the Nestle challenge?
2: We're not, we're not certain yet. Um, you know, we have lines of credit that we're able to sure. tap into. Um, but also, sometimes with an investor, the areas of expertise are what you need to tap into.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that was going to well. be my next
2: question. Yeah. And if we could find the right people with the areas of expertise, that may be as valuable as anything else, and that may be what, we, you know, what we're interested in looking at. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot that I can accomplish with this company on my own, but there's a lot that I recognize that it would be nice to have a team to work with as well.
1: Sure. One of the things I talked about on the show last week is the importance of not just getting an investor, but getting an investor that actually brings something to the table apart from money. There are a hell of a lot of people with money that don't have any brain and can't contribute anything. And you get somebody who has been in the industry, not in the cookie dough industry, but in the, in the, um, retail food industry, um, in a big way. And that would, that would be one hell of a big advantage, I'd imagine. Have you have you had our overtures to date?
2: We haven't started talking about it, uh, we haven't put it out there yet to date.
1: Yeah. But you so, haven't had people ringing up saying, Listen, when you guys need money I'm here.
2: We've we've had some you know, we've had the family and friends right talking about it, but you know we really if but, we're gonna take on money we wanna make sure that we take on the people expertise, expertise industry yeah. as well. Yeah. So, that we haven't ventured out into, uh, but it may be time to start testing the waters.
1: So, how does it feel to be um, taking on a Goliath? It feels pretty exciting. Good. You've got a fantastic attitude. You know, it's
2: exciting. Yeah.
1: (laughs) You're great. Um, It just seems like you've come so far since we met um, on Ken's radio program. Um, And, uh, you're very grounded. You're very happy. You don't seem like you've had any stress at all. You, you've got seven times more outlets than you had then, and it's only been a lousy six months.
2: Oh, Bob, if you saw me in person, you'd see all the gray hairs on my head that I've sprouted since then. But
1: I don't believe it. I on the be-
2: phone, I sound nice and relaxed.
1: You've just got that sort of bubbly, great <laughs> personality. And, um I love it, and I said six months ago, I said we would talk again and see how you were going because you are really the quintessential entrepreneur, and uh, congratulations on doing such a phenomenal job, and uh, again, thank you for being on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. I really appreciate um, sharing your experience with the world because it really is a great great story and it's such a valuable story for entrepreneurs who are starting up businesses because um you're just an inspiration to everybody
2: thank you bob thank you so much for having me on the show i appreciate
1: it it. it. it's a pleasure now if you truly i know that you know you expect people like me to praise everything but um as you know if you listen to the show i usually bunk things but um You've really got to try. Seriously. Jen and Joe's cookie dough. You might think, oh, you know, my waistline's, I don't know how much of Jen and Joe's cookie dough my waistline can stand. Give it a go. To hell with your waistline. They have—they <laughs> are sensational cookies, truly. And the flavours are killers. Snickerdoodle. Give it a go. Um, and uh, so, so look for Jen and Joe's in the freezer section. Of your supermarket, and when those big, bad, nasty, seventy-six billion-dollar Nestlé guys line up with their plastic cookie dough, go to Jen and Joe's. This is Bob Pritchard, and if you're listening, and you're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business, and I'll be back in just a minute.
0: The American Institute of Sales, Marketing, and Management is one of the leading accreditation institutes in the world. Do you have the letters AISMM after your name? Do you have the AISMM accreditation certificate on your wall for your clients and colleagues to envy? Do you have the AISMM membership pin on your lapel? AISMM helps you do business. Join the American Institute of Sales, Marketing, and Management now. Go to AISMM.org. That's AISMM.org. are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show brought to you by the American Institute for Sales, Marketing and Management on the Voice America Business Network. How about that, Jen? She's very cool. And uh, as you can tell, You know, I've been ill for the last week and uh, I've got this infection in my chest. Uh, That was pre-recorded. We recorded it before I got ill. So that's the difference in the voice. But I have just had delivered to me straight from the oven white chocolate wasabi cookie, lemon drops cookie, and my favorite. Snickerdoodle cookies. They're just sitting here. They're piping hot. They're actually too hot to eat, but they're beautiful, just arrived. I love them. So, um, go to the supermarket, go to the freezer section, and get yourself a pack of Jen and Joe's cookies. They are brilliant. This is a segment where I answer emails from listeners right across the world. And it's extremely popular, judging by the mail that we receive. So no matter what your enterprise, we all have the same issues and the same challenges. It doesn't matter whether you're in retail, a plumber, a landscape gardener, or whether you're running a dry cleaner. Now, my first email today is from Alan Johnson of Reseda in Los Angeles, which is actually just up the road. Bob, I enjoy your program, and I've also received huge benefit from your book. My question is, how do we measure the business outcome of the work we do in content marketing? Good question, Darren. Alan, um, the, f- the fewer ways we measure the business outcome of content marketing, the better, I reckon. This is one area where you need to keep it pretty simple the beauty of the critical few metrics concept is it forces us to think about business outcomes instead of focusing on over the, you know, that full mass of raw data that, that comes when we log into analytical programs and um, in addition, focusing on outcomes allows us to communicate more successfully with the business decision makers who want to hear about outcomes, and they're not the least bit interested in a whole stack of raw data. You know, how often have you shared the most recent numbers with somebody who's a, um, a senior executive only to hear them say, you know, that's great, terrific, but what does it really mean to this business? I mean, that's, that's what you need to know. The tricky part is knowing which critical few metrics will be most important to your organization. And while this varies across business types, for content marketing optimization purposes, we can certainly make a couple of assumptions. Ultimately, It's all about making money. No matter what you do, it's all about making money. So to be successful, every single thing we do in business, whether we're selling hot dogs and hamburgers or strategy consulting services, we must have a direct line to one overriding business need, and that's creating economic value. There are two separate but equally important functions that roll up into creating economic value. One, increased revenue generated by marketing and sales. And secondly, increased profitability created by finance and operations. That's it. Now, many incredibly talented content marketers can get tripped up on the revenue side of things. After all, all truly exceptional content marketing is about creating quality content, not direct economic benefit. So it's a long game where we care more about engagement and less about selling. In fact, phases of the buying cycle are often referred to as awareness, consideration, and deliberation, not getting the user to click the buy now button. In an ideal world, it'd be all it'd be fantastic if we we're all measured on clarity of message, grammatical quality, production value, and whether it's going to help anybody. But it's, Not as simple as more sessions, a lower bounce rate, or longer duration page views. In the context of sales, the secret to determining what the critical few measures are for any organization lies in the understanding what a typical customer's buying cycle looks like. Once armed with this knowledge, it's really easy to come up with the outcomes-based metrics that your company leaders want to see and hear as a result of your content marketing. The other aspect of creating economic value is profitability. It may also be necessary to do some digging to understand how content marketing is ultimately impacting this end of the business, but it will almost certainly be worth it. Wow, those cookies smell good. I can't wait to get off here and (laughs) and dive into them. Lemon drop, they're great. Snickerdoodles, they're great too. Now, let's say it costs your company five bucks to print and ship a big full-color brochure. If the how-to blog your content marketing team publishes leads to 100,000 potential customers downloading the brochure as a PDF, saving you printing and shipping costs, that's a $500,000 argument for the efficacy of your work. You know five hundred thousand dollars, another great example is the cost of email lists purchased from a reputable supplier. A high quality legitimate source of targeted opt-in email addresses can be as high as thousand dollars CPM or a buck per email address. If they had a blog you publishing generates ten thousand new legitimate and needed email subscribers a month, then you just save the organisation. $120,000 a year. So while improved reporting to leadership is obviously important, there are other reasons to do a better job of understanding the critical few metrics and their role in content marketing optimization. Once armed with a, sim- sim- a simple understanding of the business impact content is having on your organization's top and bottom line, It's a great time to leverage this information and to get your content team excited about the work they do as individuals and as a team. The crunching you here is Jen and Joe's cookies. They are sensational. (laughs) Sharing information about the economic value of your teamwork, it's, it's really motivating, And it doesn't take long until a lot of others in the company become interested in hearing how they could spend their personal time contributing. And this dramatic increase in content with virtually no overhead can lead to many revenue opportunities that closed at a better rate than those from other channels. So the dynamic at play here is competition and it works extremely well. Alan, hopefully I've provided a few ideas on how to get started with measuring your data initiatives. There's no it's not a trivial task, so don't be discouraged when you realize your content marketing optimization efforts have been focused on the wrong things. It's all about getting results. We will send you out a copy of my international bestseller, Marketing Magic. That'll go off to you tomorrow. But don't forget I want to hear from you, so visit my website at bobbritchard.com. Sign up for my newsletter, email me, tweet me, and tell me what it is you want me to talk about. Hopefully, next week, I'll get rid of this chest infection. I'm supposed to be resting, but it's hard to do. Thanks for listening to the Bob Pritchard No Bullshit Business Radio Show for Entrepreneurs, brought to you by the American Institute for Sales, Marketing, Management. Remember, if you're serious about being successful, this is the place to come every week at the same time. I'm Bob Pritchard.